And I'm Ray. (laughs) And you are listening to Gore Report. A true crime podcast. Yay! Yes! We are always here delivering you that spook. All the spooks. All the time. (laughs) And we also hope that you are having a good day and a good week and and a good life. Wow, I actually ran out of air super (laughs) hardcore on the last bit of that. Holy shit. But yeah, you guys, that's always a gesture from us to you that we hope no matter where you are and what you're doing, that you're having a happy, safe, warm, pleasant existence. And here I am for that third. Keeping it under control. Right. I'm really keeping the adjectives under control. Like every now and then I may break down and do the 40 adjectives. But I've been trying to keep it chill. I've really been trying. I mean, you only do the 40 adjectives. Uh, I'm loosely using the term 40 adjectives. (laughs) Um, You only use a whole lot of adjectives, really, when you're stemming. And that's like... (laughs) (laughs) I do be stemming. (laughs) That is for sure. Also, you guys, if you're new here with me and Ray and you're listening to our show for the first time, then... Welcome. 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 We're glad to have you. And if you like what you hear from me and Ray, then we ask you to please maybe leave us a good review or a good rating wherever you're listening from. Only if you think we deserve it, of course. Absolutely. Only if you think we deserve it. But that kind of thing really helps us out and we would greatly appreciate it. It really helps to support the show. Absolutely. Speaking of supporting the show, you guys have been terribly terribly awesome with all the influx of new comments and just just the interaction i just wanted to bring that up again because like it's crazy it's so wholesome it really is crazy i know on ted bundy part one literally last week we had this whole spiel about it but the interaction really is growing And it's really kind of fucking crazy. It's crazy, but, like, at the same time, it makes us so happy to hear from you guys. Like, it really makes our day. You have no idea. Keep it up. Keep it up. Keep it up. (laughs) You have no idea the amount of serotonin that you're hand delivering to us. Serotonin. Serotonin. Please, sir. Some dopamine, perchance. Only if you have extra. (laughs) All right, so today we are about to jump in, like we're about to just... We're jumping right in. 50 miles an hour going straight ahead. Wow. Just... 50 Um, miles an hour is pretty fast. um, Yeah, and you're going to feel like we're going 50 miles an hour because once we hit that wall (laughs) and you realize the amount of just... Fuckery and debauchery and just devastating tragedy. It is just, it's not going to be an easy journey. So, of course, I am going to throw every single trigger warning that I can think of out there because it is bad. Like, I'm going to go ahead and say, too, that I personally am a little uneasy because I know you. And I know how you do your research, and I know you do the damn thing. So, who? I'm not ready. I'm actually genuinely a little uneasy. I was actually getting frustrated finishing this episode because I was so done, like just so over 
the bullshit. And wow. this isn't even 100% all of the murders. This is only leading up to his first arrest. And then in part three. Oh, this is going to be a three-parter? It's going to be a three-parter, guys. Oh, because shit. A three-parter. I found so much information. Like, there is still information. But I'll get into that in a second. Gotcha. I'm just getting ahead of myself because I am the most excited form of not excited that I can be. So here we go. Yay, we're going to hell again. So to recap what we talked about in part one, we discussed Ted Bundy's early childhood. He grew up with his grandparents, believing that they were his parents and that his mother was his older sister only to find out his true parentage later on in life once he was in college after a breakup with his girlfriend, Diane. Ted would grow to resent Diane in a major way, and that resent would show itself in the physical similarities of his victims. He started targeting women that looked like Diane. And it's so chilling. If you were to look at a picture of all his victims, like side by side by side, it's crazy. Wow. Holy shit. So around 1969, Ted would end up getting involved with politics. He was working for the Republican Party. And meanwhile, he was also majoring in psychology at the University of Washington. This is where Ted would meet and date a single mother named Liz for six years. She would actually be Ted's partner through most of his murders. God. During his relationship with Liz, Ted would rekindle a spark with his old flame, Diane. Things would get serious for them, leading to Ted proposing to Diane, only to exact his revenge, dumping her two weeks later. That is so messed up. My God. It's pretty bad. Ted escalated from petty crimes and peeping through women's windows to brutally and savagely attacking his first victim, Karen Sparks Epley, with a metal bar from her bed frame, leaving her permanently scarred from the assault. That is where we left off in part one, so we're going to pick up from that point moving forward. Oh, God, here we go. (laughs) Another note that I want to make before we continue, I have done my absolute best to compile all the available information on each victim to tell their story as much as possible. I tried my best to find everything I could, but unfortunately, some of these victims just don't have a whole lot of information regarding who they were or what happened. Gotcha, gotcha. So... I did my best. I tried to be thorough and respectful as possible. So if some of these seem like they are very brief descriptions, it's only because of a lack of information. Understood. So we'll be jumping right in where we left off. Ted had just attacked Karen on January 4th, 1974. Bundy would then go on to abduct 21-year-old Linda Ann Healy. She was a dependable, hardworking WSU student en route to earn her degree in psychology. On January 31st, the night before her disappearance, she went out to a tavern called Dante's to drink some beer with a few friends. But she went home early to call her boyfriend. According to Liz, Ted's girlfriend, Ted often frequented Dante's tavern and another nearby bar called O'Banion's. Ted spotted Linda while she was out having a good time with her friends, and he ended up following her home from the bar. Oh, my God. After settling in at home, Linda spoke to her boyfriend on the phone for about an hour or so, and sometime later, 
Linda went into one of her roommate's rooms to chat, seemingly happy and undisturbed. At 10 p.m., she went downstairs to her room and went to bed. And that was the last time that anyone saw Linda Ann Healy alive. Holy shit. My stomach just like uh, <laughs> literally like fell straight through my asshole. Linda worked for a company that compiled weather reports for local ski resorts. And each morning she would wake up at 530 a.m. and then ride her bike to the college radio station so that she could read out the snow conditions for each resort. Without realizing it, thousands of Western Washington radio listeners were familiar with her voice. People woke up and began their mornings with the sound of her voice on the radio every day. Wow. February 1st, 1974, the next morning, her roommate in the next room, Barbara Little, was woken up by Linda's 5.30 a.m. alarm. Linda would typically turn it off after a short amount of time, but this time, the alarm didn't stop ringing. Oh, my God. Barbara poked her head in to check in on Linda, but she was nowhere to be found. Holy fucking shit. At first, she didn't figure that Linda was in any kind of danger. Despite her ringing alarm, nothing was disturbed in Linda's room. What the fuck? Like, nothing? Yeah. It, it was basically neatly tidied up. Wow. Oh, my God. That is scary. So all of her roommates, she had four other roommates living with her, and they were all home at the time of the attack, by the way. Nobody heard a thing. Which, again, fucking scary. Like boogeyman type shit. Like sweep you up in the dead of fucking night with no sound. That is just wooey. That is chilling. So her roommates began to worry once Linda's boss called and asked why she never showed up to work. This was very unlike Linda. People counted on her five days a week for her weather reports. She was dependable when it came down to showing up for work. So this was very out of the norm. They tried to write off the uneasy feeling that was nagging at them. Like they were worried, but they figured she had spontaneously left to see her boyfriend in Olympia. But when Linda's father and brother arrived at the house later in the day for a planned dinner... The housemates decided that it was finally time to drop the wishful thinking of believing she left to go see her boyfriend. Like, it was time to raise the alarm at this point. Wow, that is, oh my god. When Linda's father, James, learned about the situation, he called his wife and told her that no one had seen their daughter since the night before. Because it was only 6 p.m., he suggested that they wait a while, like, to see if she turned up. right. But Linda's mother, Joyce, was having none of that. Right. I was about to say I would hope one of the parents would maybe be like, uh, no, the waiting game is kind of over. It's past that. Something's wrong. You right. know, so holy shit. So as soon as the call ended, she called the police. Gotcha. Gotcha. Her roommates are like, all right, shit is getting weird. <laughs> so they decided to investigate on their own. Right, right. And... Even though they were concerned, James told her roommates to check if her bicycle was still in the house. Her bicycle was still there. Oh, my God. And I'm guessing was that like her main mode of transportation or? Yeah, because every morning she would ride her bike to the radio station. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. My brain. Two patrolmen were quick to arrive at the house and take statements. 
even though they had no reason to believe that a violent crime had occurred. In their opinion, this was probably just another case of a college student running off to visit their boyfriend. That, or she had hitchhiked somewhere and attended a party. Like, these were common occurrences, and they had no reason to believe anything was seriously wrong. But later that night, a homicide detective arrived at the house to investigate. Linda's room was neat and in order. Her bed was neatly made, but he pulled back the covers and he found blood on her sheets. Oh my god. They also found her nightgown inside her closet and the whole neckline was bloody. What in the fuck? So that's what led the police to, you know, finally believe this was a crime that had actually occurred. Right at this point... They're like, okay, there's no way that something's not wrong. Right. Because what the fuck? You find blood in this girl's bed. You find her nightgown in the closet with a bloody neckline, which that baffles the shit out of me. Because it's like, you know, obviously we know the killer is Ted. He took her nightgown and put it in her fucking closet? I'm going to get into that in just one second. Lord, my brain. I literally am having such a hard time. So that night... Ted crept into the house while the five women were sleeping and struck Linda Ann Healy over the head. Barbara didn't hear anything, so I'm sure it was quick and brutal. Oh, my God. After knocking her unconscious, he took the time to tidy up the crime scene. Linda's book bag, her satin pillowcase, um, I believe her regular sheet, not the fitted sheet, but her regular sheet, mm-hmm. I believe, was also missing. They were missing from her bedroom. And it's likely that he did this in order to make it appear as though she had left the house on her own accord. It's even believed that after the attack, Bundy undressed her out of her pajamas and clothed her before abducting her. My God. He hung Linda's bloody nightgown up in the closet. That, again, just said it. That is fucking chilling. After cleaning the scene... He then carried an unconscious Linda out through the door at the side of the house and loaded her into his VW bug. Here's an interesting side note. There's reports that it's certainly possible that Ted spotted Linda at Dante's Tavern and proceeded to stalk her. It's also just as likely that he randomly happened across her house late at night. So during interviews, Ted admitted that he regularly engaged in voyeurism particularly when he was drunk. As I stated in part one, he was a peeping Tom. So it's quite possible he just happened upon her window one night and that's how he targeted her. But Liz noted that his behavior began to change in 1974. Instead of spending the night at her apartment, he would instead choose to walk home. And he did this often. That is so fucking chilling. Even more interesting... Liz's apartment was a 10-minute walk away from the rooming house where Linda was living. So it would have been like on his walk home. Right. Holy shit. So it's likely that after seeing a potential target, he probed the exterior of the house for an access point. And once he had assessed the situation and come up with some sort of plan, he probably left the scene on foot and returned later with his Volkswagen. Oh my 
God. Linda Healy's jawbone was recovered March 3, 1976 from Bundy's graveyard at Taylor Mountain. The dental records confirmed Linda's identity. So he had his own little spot where he would dump remains. He had two very well-developed murder sites, and that was Issaquah and Taylor Mountain. The earliest victims missing were found at Taylor Mountain, and the most recent victims known at the time were found at Issaquah. And these are the only two sites that we know of. My fucking God. Nobody knows if there was, like, more sites than this. No one knows. These were just the two that were found out. Right. Ted chose this area because he was familiar with it. According to police reports, he hitchhiked and camped on Taylor Mountain on a number of occasions in the past. So now I'm going to tell you about one of Bundy's favorite ruses. Mm -hmm. One of his favorite lures to use. Um, It involved him faking an injury and intentionally dropping items in front of young women. Oh, yeah. You very briefly brought that up in part one, but that's fucking my God. He's a fucking psychopath. Yeah. So if someone took the bait, they offered help. He would ask them if they could help him carry it back to his car. And in many cases, he strategically parked his Volkswagen Beetle in quiet areas away from potential witnesses. Like, this gave him the time and the space to strike. Right. And not be seen by someone else. Right. Which is just, again, fucking chilling how calculated he is. But his attacks appear to be situational as well. Right, right. All of these... Like, you'll see a lot of recurring themes here, Mm -hmm. but then you'll also see some differences as well. Like some slight deviations. Yeah, because as I will get into it later, he evolves. My fucking God. When you said that and looked at me, I would be lying if I said that I was not physically trying to pick my asshole up off of the (laughs) ground. My God, excuse I hate me, let this. Let me just pick this up for a second. <laughs> uh, yeah, hey, uh, excuse me, one question. Can you help me pick up my asshole? <laughs> my God, I am not with it. I am not with this. This is this is going to be bad. So the next four victims were known as the Taylor Mountain Skeletons. All four of these women were identified by skeletal remains at Taylor Mountain. On March 12th, 1974... Ted abducted 19-year-old Donna Manson from the campus of Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. She had plans to attend a jazz concert on campus, but she never made it. Oh, my God. Donna's roommate said she was seriously concerned with her appearance that night and had changed clothes several times. She left her dorm to start the two- to five-minute walk it took to get to the library where the concert was going to be. The security guard claims that he saw Donna walking up and down the road in different instances as if she was looking for someone. Then he never saw her again. Oh my God. When she didn't come home, her roommates didn't think anything was wrong. Donna was a free-spirited girl who would hitchhike to get rides. So they were used to her being gone several days at a time. It took six days before anyone reported her missing. Oh, my God. The following is a newspaper article that circulated regarding her disappearance. I'm going to read that to you now. So the title reads, Foul Play Suspected for Coed. Foul play is suspected in the disappearance of a coed from the Evergreen State College, according to the Thurston County 
Sheriff's Department. Inspector Charles Grafe said Friday that Donna G. Manson, 19, of Auburn, has been missing from a dorm at the college for 10 days. Miss Manson told roommates she was going to attend a jazz concert March 12th at the college. She failed to appear at the concert and has not been heard from since. The missing girl is the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Lyle E. Manson of Auburn. Oh my God. So I'll post the newspaper clipping to our Twitter. Socials are always at the end. So stay tuned for that. Yes. So although Donna had hitchhiked in the past, there was no evidence to suggest that she was planning on going far that night. She didn't take her backpack or a change of clothes, and the camera that she liked to bring with her everywhere was still in her dorm room. Oh my God. In 1989, before his execution, Ted Bundy confessed to abducting and killing Donna Manson. Although he told King County Detective Robert Keppel that he didn't remember much about the crime, he did describe it as nightmarish. Holy fucking shit. Hold on one second. I'm like, I'm looking around. I'm trying to find my asshole. (laughs) I can't find it. I'm genuinely trying my hardest to find it. Can you help me find it? <laughs> Holy shit, Ray. Look Holy under, shit. Look up under your seat, babe. Oh, my God. <laughs> I am so, like, if you guys could see my face. Oh, God. For Ted motherfucking Bundy to describe something he did as nightmarish, I, I'm not with that. I could have gone the rest of my life not knowing that, and I would have been fine. Do you want to find out what made it so nightmarish? Oh, God, because the morbid part of my brain is like, I actually do because I'm fascinated. But then the other part of me is like, well, you need to focus first off on finding your asshole. <laughs> that needs to be the first priority here. My God. So my in God. That same interview with Keppel, he told him that the search team would never find Donna's skull. In his own words, it was nowhere. This is because he allegedly incinerated her head in Liz's fireplace. In her, in... (laughs) In Liz's fucking fireplace? Yeah. And this part really gets me for some reason, but according to Bundy, he then vacuumed up the ashes. Vacuumed? Mm Mm-hmm. You're shaking. I'm literally fucking... Oh my god, okay. I'm... <laughs> Fucking shit. <laughs> so Bundy acknowledged that this was a bizarre and risky act, saying, quote, It's a lot of work and certainly very risky under the circumstances. I mean, the kids come home from school and there's a roaring fire in the fireplace and it's warm outside. End quote. What the fuck? There are some major inconsistencies with this story, though. So, burning a skull in an open residential fireplace would not be easy. To burn human bone into ash, the temperature of the fire needs to reach somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Right. You're not going to achieve that in a fireplace. Now that I think about it, that actually is a good point. You're not going to achieve that just by a willy-nilly house fire. Right. But... Even if Bundy had managed to achieve that temperature, it's likely that large fragments of bone would have remained behind. And this is something that would have taken a lot of time and fuel to do. 
Although it's very unlikely that Bundy did burn her skull, he did point out that it was a lot of work. And the fact that he acknowledged this makes it difficult to completely dismiss his story. I tend to believe that he put the head in the fireplace, burned off any skin, muscle, sinew. He burned it down to the skull, basically, I believe. I would assume burned down what he could burn down in that kind of fire. Because he did keep skulls for um, trophies. My fucking God, man. Investigators were unable to locate her body, and to this day, she remains listed as a missing person. You know what, Ted? I want to take something back that I said in part one. We were not fucking rooting for you, okay? Let me just go (laughs) ahead and throw that out there. We're not rooting for you, motherfucker. Absolutely fucking not. Never was rooting, never will be rooting. I'm glad you're fucking dead. I'm over this. (laughs) No, fuck no. I am literally so over this. Oh, you're over this? Imagine how I felt after... Hours and weeks and days. (laughs) You're over this? Okay. You said that's cute. That's cute. (laughs) Oh, man. I'm glad we had a good laugh. I needed that. I would be lying if I said that this was not increasingly difficult for me. Like, Jesus. I don't know if I brought this point up in part one. But I obviously know Ted Bundy. I mean, if you're into true crime, you know who the fuck Ted Bundy is. Right. But I've never fully absorbed his story and his crimes the way that I have with other killers and other cases. So I'm kind of in a big way hearing a lot of this information for the first time. And a lot of what you said just this far in, I had no fucking idea about. And I'm just, I'm blown. I'm truly blown. I'm sorry to tell you, but it does get worse. Oh, God. It gets increasingly worse. My God. So on April 17, 1974, Ted Bundy abducted 18-year-old Susan Elaine Rancourt from the Central Washington University campus in Ellensburg. She was a freshman student who was majoring in biology. And unlike most of Bundy's other victims, Susan had blonde hair. Oh, wow. That's Didn't you say he usually targeted like dark-haired women mm-hmm. like Diane? According to her family, she was a bright, inquisitive, and studious young woman who excelled at school with an average of 4.0, and she absolutely loved to read. Oh, wow. She sounds like a brilliant soul. My goodness. She was working her ass off trying to pay for her schooling, and that evening she was washing her clothes in the communal laundry room of her dorm building. Once her clothes were started, she left and attended a meeting at Munson Hall around 8 p.m. for a job opportunity. Once this meeting was over, she was returning back to the laundry room at her dorm. She also had plans to meet up with a friend afterwards and watch a movie, but Susan never made it back to retrieve her clothes. She never made it back, period. She was gone. Oh, my God. After Bundy noticed Susan walking by herself... He wandered over to her direction. Then, once he was close enough, he pretended to struggle with a stack of books that he was carrying. It's likely that he dropped the books to get her attention. Like I said, he would fake an injury to appear not as a predator. Right. (laughs) Gotcha, gotcha. So when Susan saw this injured man struggling, she did what most people would do and asked him if he needed any help. And needless to say, Bundy immediately accepted her offer. Of course he fucking did. Fucking pig. After Susan agreed to help Bundy carry his books, they walked up the pathway on the western side of the library before turning right before Chestnut Street. 
And at that point, they crossed the road and headed north towards the railway trestle where Bundy parked his car. And as Susan was leaning over and trying to put the books into his Volkswagen Beetle, he seized the opportunity and struck her over the head with a crowbar. He then lifted her unconscious body into his car and drove away. Oh, my God. When Susan didn't return to her dorm that night, her friends and family were immediately worried. Unlike Donna, Susan was not the type of person who would just take off without telling anyone. She was described as rather safe and predictable. Right, right. So in March of 1975, investigators discovered her fractured skull on Taylor Mountain. God. The only tip that I can give you guys is pay attention to the dates. Oh, my God. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Because on some dates, he would abduct two. So he literally pulled a Gacy. Because mm-hmm. that's what Gacy was doing. Every other day, he was abducting and killing. Sometimes he was killing twice in one day. Like, my God. It's like you said, too. How the fuck do they fit this into their schedule? Right. Oh, my God. Murder, like, murder, murder. Breakfast. Murder, murder, murder. murder, 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 murder dinner. dinner. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, Jesus. Okay, but I got you, though. I'll pay attention to the dates. <laughs> okay. So on May 6th, 1974... 22-year-old Roberta Kathleen Parks, also known as Kathy Parks, was last seen on the campus of Oregon State University in Corvallis, Oregon. Even though Kathleen was majoring in religious studies at the time, she was still experiencing confusion. She didn't know what she wanted to do with her life. Career-wise, she had no clue. Gotcha. She was young and bright, trying to figure it all out. And looking back on it, like, it's sad to me that Kathleen never got a chance to talk to her friends or her loved ones about her long-term plans and her confusion for her future. Like, she never had that chance. My God. Her skull was found with the others on Taylor Mountain, over 250 miles away from where she was last seen. On June 1st, 1974, Ted then abducted 22-year-old Brenda Carol Ball from Burien, Washington. Two weeks before she went missing, she dropped out of Highline College in Des Moines. At the time of her murder, it seems as though she was at a crossroads in her life as well. Right, right. The night before her disappearance, Brenda was having a few rounds at the Flame Tavern in Burien. She was a regular at this bar, and she knew all the other regulars and the bar staff pretty well. Gotcha. She stayed that evening until closing time at 2 a.m., and since the night was closing up, she asked one of her friends, the band members, for a ride home. But unfortunately, he was headed in a different direction, so it wasn't going to work out. There are two conflicting reports about how Brenda left the bar that night. One report says that she left by herself and was planning on hitching a ride. Another claims that she left with an unidentified man. My God. Either way, we know the end result. She ended up in Ted Bundy's hands. Now, when Brenda failed to return to her apartment in Normandy Park, there weren't any immediate concerns about her safety. She was another free-spirited kind of girl who would just be gone for days at a time. And the summer of 1974 had just arrived, and Brenda was now free of the responsibility of college. So, as a result, she started to party a lot. Right, right. As the days slowly turned into weeks, a sense of worry started to creep in. Brenda had a habit of going on trips and staying with different people, but this excursion of hers was much longer than usual. 
Right. So Brenda didn't make any attempts to make any contact. All of her clothes were still in the apartment. Like, she was just gone. My God. That is so sad. In an attempt to ease their concerns, her roommates decided to contact her bank to ask if she had been withdrawing any money. They were given devastating news. There was no recent activity on her bank account whatsoever. Oh, my God. So at that stage, they contacted Brenda's parents in Kent. Unfortunately, they hadn't seen or heard from their daughter either. And it was now becoming clear that something was wrong. On June 17th, her mother, Rosemary, contacted the police and filed a missing person report. When Brenda first disappeared, the police didn't believe that her case was related to the other missing girls. Linda Healy, Donna Gale Manson, Susan Rancourt, and Roberta Kathleen Parks were all abducted from college campuses. Brenda, on the other hand, was slightly older and had vanished after spending the night at a dive bar. And to add to all this, with Brenda having a history of leaving for days at a time, the police just didn't take the claim seriously. Right, which is absolutely stupid to me because, like, it doesn't matter if someone has a habit of being gone or not. If you're having someone's family members and friends saying, hey, this, you know, something's not right here. This is not normal. I don't think anything else should be said for that to be taken seriously. Right. You know, it's just one of those things. It's really, really sad that when time is of the essence, you more times than not will see the police just absolutely fucking do nothing about it. I think that... If somebody comes to you with claims, the police should not have a preconceived notion of what happened already embedded in their brain. Like exactly. That, like exactly. that should not be a thing. Exactly. I 100% agree with There that. is a reason why these people are coming to you and telling you this. Right. So listen. Right. If, if something happened that was in the norm, then they wouldn't be there talking to you. So, according to Robert Keppel, there just didn't seem to be anything in common. And because of this, the authorities didn't make her case public until August 17th. My God, that, that is enraging. According to Liz, Ted was in a hurry on the evening of May 31st. She was quoted saying, It was a Saturday night. My parents came out from Utah. The tradition in the Mormon faith is that when you're eight years old, you get baptized. And so I was going to have my daughter Molly baptized, and my father was going to do the baptism. We went out to dinner the night before, and Ted treated us all to pizza. He was in a big hurry to go. And after it was all done, he showed up at the church. I forget what he said was the excuse, car trouble or something like that. I was mad because he was making me look bad in front of my parents. But, you know... Never in our wildest dreams did we think he was out abducting people, end quote. My God. Like, uh. after they after they were done with their pizza, he was in a big hurry. Oh, my God. The next day, he didn't show up. He completely missed the baptism. Mm, what were you doing, Ted? Or some people also believe that he was only, like, two hours late. But either way... He was in a big hurry to leave, and then you miss an important event like that? Right. It's like I just said, what are you doing, Ted? After it was all done, he did, at some point in time, show up to the church. I forget what he said was the excuse. 
So it's likely that Ted was eager to leave because he was planning on going out and hunting for another victim. Also, someone at the bar claimed they saw Brenda talking to a man in a sling that night. Oh, no. By that time, the police knew about the ruse this serial killer was using. So why didn't they make that connection? Like, I take this statement with a grain of salt, but if it's true, that's crazy. Yeah, that, again, enraging, actually. The fact that he was late the next day suggests that he was preoccupied with the disposal of Brenda's body. That, or he needed to revisit her remains and confirm that he hadn't left any physical evidence behind. Because Ted was usually drunk during his crimes. My Like, he would get drunk and do this, and as a result... He often felt the need to revisit crime scenes and reassure himself that he didn't make any mistakes. My God, again, so calculated. What in the fuck, bro? Ten months after Brenda's disappearance, two forestry students discovered her skull at a remote location on Taylor Mountain. Her skull was the first found on the mountain. Oh, my God. Now, Ted... He would come back to Taylor Mountain and visit the remains. He was a necrophiliac. Oh, my God. So he would go back to these bodies and he would redress them, do their makeup, do their hair. He would have sex with them until they were too putrefied to have sex with. I have not one word. Like, we're talking dead bodies out in the elements with varying stages of decomposition with each visit. Again, not one word. I am stunned. In some cases, he'd decapitate them and keep their heads like trophies. He'd wash and style their hair, do their makeup, like just heinous shit. Like the heads. My fucking God. Like, he would bring them back to his apartment and... Have them for, like, a certain amount of time before he would, like, take them out and get rid of them. Oh, my God. And I don't know if I wrote this down in my notes, but I'm going to go ahead and say it now while it's fresh on my mind. Some of the skulls were missing their front teeth. Like, top and bottom front teeth, from what what I found. What in the fuck? So, what does that imply? That implies that he was probably... uh, Oh, God. God, God, God. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Fucking fuckity fuck. He was probably raping the heads and probably removed the teeth for ease of access or whatever. So, are you okay? (laughs) Fluff fact. Fluff fact? I can't do it. I need a fucking fluff fact now. Hey, beautiful spirit. How are you doing today? Well, I would say that I'm doing good, but we're in this segment of the episode because I prematurely fluffed. And that means that I'm going to bring you a fluff fact. And a fluff fact is something that me and Ray use to diffuse a situation when we're talking about something that's a wee bit too fucking much for us. Sometimes that happens and today was one of those times. So, for today's fluff fact, I thought I would tell you guys about a pretty funny instance that happened to me as a child. Um, it was pretty awful. (laughs) I don't know if you guys remember, like, the elephant elephant thing. It was like the little blue elephant that sat on the ground and it had a four-foot trunk and it shot butterflies out of its snout. 
and you had to like run around with a net and catch the butterflies. Well, yeah, me and my brother got one of those for Christmas. I was like nine years old, maybe 10. And the first time that that fucking monstrosity was set up, I literally screamed and pissed all over myself. And I'm not exaggerating. I really did. I was morbidly terrified of the elephant elephant. In no way did I have an elephant time. Ah, huh? did you get it? Did you get it? See what I did there? Ah, okay. Okay, I'll stop. We can get back to the case. So the following is a quote from Ted Bundy. He said, quote, The ultimate possession was, in fact, the taking of the life, and then the physical possession of the remains. Murder is not just a crime of lust or violence. It becomes possession. They are part of you. The victim becomes a part of you, and you two are forever one. And the grounds where you kill them or leave them become sacred to you, and you will always be drawn back to them. End quote. It's very heavy. June 11th, 1974, Bundy kidnapped and killed 18-year-old George Ann Hawkins from the University District of Seattle. She was walking down an alleyway behind her sorority house that evening, and she was just 60 feet from her door when Ted called out to her. He, again, was faking an injury. He had crutches and dropped his books again, and George Ann was super nice. So, of course, she went to help him. This is a running theme of him preying on people's good nature. My God. She helped him pick up his books, and Ted then asked her if she could put it in his car for him. She agreed and opened the passenger door of his car, and she was like, Oh, that's weird. You don't have a front passenger seat. <laughs> what? The front passenger seat was gone. And then Bundy quickly hit her in the head with a crowbar before she had any time to react. He was ready for this. Like, he hid the crowbar in the wheel well of his car. Like, scarily efficient. Oh, my God. So he pushes her into the car where his front seat would be, and he begins to drive out of town at this point. And I'm sure at this point he was going to take her to his graveyard. But she woke up suddenly and began babbling about a Spanish test. Incoherent from being beat over the head with a fucking crowbar... This test was something her friend said she had been stressed over, and Bundy wasn't prepared for her to wake up. Oh my god, my heart, my fucking heart. He stopped the car, pulled her out, to continue beating her with the crowbar. No one knows how she actually died. Her body has never been found. Oh my god. In an interview with Detective Keppel, Bundy admitted to beating her and strangling her. Responding to the wave of disappearances, police called for a wide-scale investigation and enlisted a number of different government agencies to help look for these missing girls. And one of these agencies was the Washington State Department of Emergency Services, where Bundy worked. What? At this job, Bundy met Carol Ann Boone, a twice-divorced mother of two, whom he would date on and off for years as the murders continued. Yes, he dated Carol while still in a relationship with Liz. That was about to be my next question. You just answered it. What a piece of shit. So he's in a relationship with Liz. He starts this relationship with Carol. He's murdering people. 
And it's just, all of it is just going unnoticed because of his charisma and his outward appearance. It's crazy. That status has something to do with it. Like, good God, I know you guys are probably sick and fucking tired of me bringing up John Wayne Gacy. But, I mean, it was the same exact way with him. Right. That's why he didn't get caught until way later, because no one dared question him. He was such a lovable, charming, wonderful community staple. Like, who the fuck would question him, you know? Right. On June 17th, 1974, Brenda Baker's body is found in Miller's Sylvania State Park. Ooh, that was a mouthful. It is unknown when she was abducted. My God. That is the... Only thing I was able to find on Brenda Baker. My God. I mean, anything that I was able to find that seemed source-worthy. Gotcha, gotcha. The next two victim circumstances are insane. He abducted these two in broad daylight with over forty to 50,000 witnesses. Forty to 50,000? Yes. What? Yes. My God. I just tried. The words just fucking couldn't come out of my mouth. Oh, my God. This happened on July 14th, 1974 at Lake Sammamish in Issaquah, Washington, eight miles east of Seattle. There's a huge seven-mile-long lake, and there's beaches and trails, fishing and everything. Like, it's a state park, and it's beautiful. But that particular day... It was packed. People were coming out to enjoy their summertime festivities, and there were an estimated forty to 50,000 people there that day because Rainier Beer was a company that would hold their company picnics there annually. So there's this huge event going on. Wow. It was around noon, and a handsome man approached a 22-year-old woman named Mary Osner wearing blue jeans, a white shirt, and an injured arm in a sling. She was hanging out on this grassy knoll, and there were other people, like, right there, too, eating their lunches. So many people saw him. Broad daylight. My God, he just didn't give a fuck, clearly. Like I said, this is what the fuck psychopaths do. <laughs> right. <laughs> like... Scarily efficient. Scarily fucking efficient. So he asked her to help him move his sailboat. And for me, it's an automatic red flag. I am not helping you. I have zero experience with sailboats, sir. Unless you have great insurance, I am not the one to ask. Right, right. <laughs> like, why would that be the excuse? Like, really, Mr. Psychology Degree? Okay. Well, it's weird because you think about the imagery of a man that's seemingly injured with his arm in a sling. Asking a woman to help move a sailboat. Yeah, it's like, what are you doing with a sailboat? You're like, you have a broken arm and shit. What would you be out there doing with a sailboat? How about take responsibility for your shit and hire some movers, the fuck? Right? <laughs> like, what? My God, this is just, it's really hard to, like, get inside of his brain. It's scary. So she inevitably agrees to help him, and she follows him to his beige VW bug. And when they get there, she comments that there's no boat, and he said, Oh, yeah, it's just a short ride down the road. It's at my parents' house. So Mary gets weirded out. Her instincts kick in, and she listened to her instincts. She ended up declining politely, and 
She told him she was already running late to meet her parents for lunch, and he was super nice about it. He actually apologized to her for inconveniencing her and not having the boat there. He even walked her back to where she was and was like, thanks for the help. Oh, my God. And she had no idea that she just survived an encounter with one of the most evil men that have ever fucking lived. Right. My God. So he used the same excuse, the same lure on several women that day. Many of the young women who had been approached by him thought he had a Canadian or a British accent. What? Yeah, so I don't know if he was, like, changing his voice. You know, so he could sit there and talk like this. That was... I don't know if it would be offensive to anyone that has an English accent for me to say that that was actually really good, but I that kind of surprised me. I thought that was really good. It's it's fine. Right, right, <laughs> it's right. Fine. This is fine. Another woman he approached was 23-year-old Janice Ott, who was a local in Issaquah. She moved to the area to take a job helping children, and she was described as a sweet person. Unlike Ted's usual traits, Janice, again, had blonde hair, which is surprising. He was really just becoming desperate at this point for a new victim. Wow, to the point to where he abandoned his preferences. Right. That is scary. Janice's husband was in California at the time as they were going through a separation, and although they kept in contact, Janice was alone. There was no one around to hang out with, And she had nothing else to do that day, so she decided to head to the beach by herself. I mean, I would. Right, If I lived that close to the beach, I'd be gone all the time. I'm sorry. Right, right. Beach bum life at its fullest. (laughs) Hell yeah. After leaving a note for a roommate saying that she'd be back by 4.30 p.m., Janice grabbed her yellow bicycle and set off for Lake Sammamish. Once she reached the park, she found a spot on the beach where she could sunbathe and relax. 20 minutes later... Ted Bundy, coming in here with his bullshit, (laughs) spotted Janice relaxing on the beach and decided to approach her. He used the same bullshit excuse, and she agreed to help him. Oh, my God. Janice was friendly towards Ted, but she did display signs that she didn't really want to leave the beach. And according to onlookers, he was persistent. Wow. Like, he was pretty insistent. Again, it's that blatancy for me. That blatancy of just not giving a fuck. That is so scary. That is literally so scary. From his perspective, he's probably wanting to avoid another situation where she'd suddenly back out. So he's like trying to apply that pressure. Gotcha, gotcha. Judging by witness accounts, the following conversation took place after Ted introduced himself and explain that he needed help. Keep in mind that parts of this conversation are probably missing because this is only based on the recollections of people who were sitting within earshot. Gotcha, gotcha. As it turns out, there were three women that were close enough to Janice and Ted to naturally overhear what was being said, and one of them clearly heard him introduce himself as Ted, One of them noticed what car he had. Mm -hmm. Like, badass, just taking notes. Like, Gotcha, gotcha. You're a little creepy. I'm going to keep an eye on you. Gotcha, definitely. So, Janice starts by saying, sit down and we can talk about it. 
It's up at my parents' house in Issaquah. Oh, really? I live in Issaquah. Well, okay, I don't know how to sail, though. It'll be really easy for me to teach you. Is there room for my bicycle in the car? Yes, it'll fit in the trunk. Ugh! And at this stage, she started to put her clothes back on, and she says, Okay, I'll go. Under one condition, I get to ride in the sailboat. Of course. My car's over there in the parking lot. I guess I'll get to meet your parents then. Oh, my God. So as they were walking away together, Bundy asked Janice if she knew anyone in Issaquah. And I wanted to include this because knowing what is waiting for her on the other side is so heartbreaking. That was the last time that anyone saw her alive. Oh, my God. Once they got to his car and she saw there wasn't a sailboat, before she could react, he punched her in the face and put her in the car where the passenger seat would be. It's believed that he strangled her to knock her out. He tied her up and took her to another location and left her somewhere in the woods. And get this shit. He did this and then came back to the beach in search of another victim. Like, he, whoa, whoa. He dropped her off, left her there restrained, came back to the beach for another victim. He is really slipping off the fucking rail. It's bad. So he ended up approaching 18-year-old Denise Marie Nasland. And this is a side note, but Denise and Janice had gone missing within three and a half hours from each other. What the fuck? Now, Denise, she was a student who was studying software development at night school. And during the day, she worked part-time as an office worker. At the time of her death, she was dating a man named Ken Little. At around 1 p.m., Denise and Ken arrived at Lake Sammamish with another couple, Bob Sargent and Nancy Batima. The group decided to sit at a spot on the eastern side of the park, roughly around 200 feet north of the restrooms. And according to Nancy, Denise took four Valium tablets when they arrived. Whoa. Four Valium tablets. Holy shitty, getting litty. Getting really, really litty. Now, shortly after 4 p.m., Ken and Bob fell asleep. And at that particular time, Denise told Nancy that she was like, hi. I bet. I bet. I have no trouble like, believing damn. that. <laughs> <laughs> damn. Damn. But after a short conversation about the time, Denise apparently got up without saying anything and walked over towards the restrooms. However, I am going to add that another source says that she argued with her boyfriend before storming off to the bathroom. She was just trying to go to the bathroom. And here comes Ted with his bullshit, same lore. And she was being nice and agreed to help, again, constantly preying on people's kindness. Now that he has a second victim, he took Denise back to where he was keeping Janice, and he assaulted both of them. Oh my god. One was forced to watch as he murdered the other, and then he'd murder the one that was left. Oh, holy shit! It's believed that he raped both of them, so he made the other watch as he was raping and killing the other one, and then... Oh my fuck. For almost two months, these two young women were missing despite full-scale searches by their family and friends. Like, they were just gone. That breaks my heart. Like, truly, I just... <sighs> September 2nd, 1974, 
a Jane Doe is abducted from Boise, Idaho. I have no further information on her. Gotcha. On September 6, 1974, two hunters discovered a crowbar and skeletal remains scattered across a grassy patch of land in a wooded area near Issaquah. It was also one mile east of an old railroad trestle just outside Issaquah, Washington. These remains belonged to Janice Ott and Denise Naslin alongside Georgine Hawkins. Denise was identified by her jawbone and femur, and Janice was identified by her skull initially. According to Keppel, the site was a multi-use environment for Bundy. This was another Bundy graveyard, much like Taylor Mountain. But Taylor Mountain is where he kept all of, like, the skulls from that area in Washington. Gotcha. But on the day Janice and Denise vanished, several other women remembered being approached by a man who had tried and failed to lure them to his car. They reached out and told the authorities about this attractive man with his arm in a sling. His vehicle was a brown, beige Volkswagen Beetle, and the name he gave them was Ted. No originality whatsoever. Like, I'm just going to tell you my name. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Like, it blows my mind. Like, he just used his actual fucking name. Right. Like, whether that's a display of how arrogant and cocky he was or just plain dumb, I don't know. But either way, that's fucking chilling. Like, he used his fucking name, for God's sakes. Right. So, the King County Police broadcasted this everywhere. They set up a tip line, and they also had composite sketches of the description. They're getting 100 tips a day. I want to know where in the world they found this person who did this sketch, because it was not a good sketch. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm going to show you a photo of it. Look at this. Now, tell me, do you you think they lied on their job application? (laughs) Somebody uh, lied. Yeah, that, I mean, it's not bad art, but that definitely doesn't look like Ted Bundy. At all. Like, at all, at all. My God. So I'll post both this photo and the newspaper clipping to both the Instagram page and our Twitter so you guys can check that out. But it looks nothing like him. The thing about Ted Bundy, even though he was handsome... He did tend to fly under the radar a lot. Like, he was attractive, but he didn't have what you would call memorable features. So that allowed him to change how he looked very subtly. Like, growing a beard, parting his hair differently, styling differently, letting his hair grow out some. Like, his look was constantly changing. Maybe that's why he had no problem using the name Ted, because he was such a chameleon. That actually does kind of make sense, though. But even the clothes he wore, the style choices, they they were even changed as well. Like, go to Google Images and look at all the different pictures of him. It's scary how much he looks so different from one picture to the next. Wow. Wow. After releasing the description to the public, the police were contacted by a few people who identified the same Seattle resident, Ted Bundy. One of the tips was from Bundy's psychology professor. What? And he said, I've got a weirdo in my class who looks like him, and his name is Ted Bundy. Holy fuck. 
Another tip came from Ann Rule, and if you listen to part one, I explained that she was a co-worker of Ted's at the Seattle Suicide Crisis Center. Mm-hmm. She was a former Seattle police officer and a fledgling crime writer. She wrote the book, The Stranger Beside Me, about Ted Bundy, and she's considered a Bundy expert. But for the longest time, Ted's behavior was shocking to her. She never pictured him doing this, like, in her book. Right, right. She talks about how they were friends, like they would even walk each other out to their vehicles, and he would tell her to lock her doors because he didn't want anything happening to her. So, this following clip, I tried to find the original everywhere, and I couldn't find it, but this clip was featured on Morbid's podcast. Yay, Ash and Elena! We love you! Yes, we totally stand morbid here. Fuck yes. And this clip is of Anne Rule giving us some insight on her friendship and her own analysis of Bundy. Ooh. And it also gives, like, some chilling, like, deep insight to why he would go after his victims the way that he did. Gotcha. Okay, cool. I'm going to play that clip for you now. Just the fact that this is a guy, as you mentioned earlier, that treated you very well. Yes. Liked you. Was protected. Uh, protected. I, th- I think so. You know, he had... Um, his victims had to be someone he didn't know. He told Bob Keppel, the, the detective, the detective, the yeah, detective. once that um, if he talked to them, a woman, for more than 20 minutes, then she was no good as... A victim, because he, victims had to just be objects. He didn't want to have any emotional connection. Um, so I probably was as safe as in my mother's arms. Also, he liked slender co-eds with long, dark hair parted in the middle. Well, I haven't been slender since I was four. <laughs> and, and I have red hair, which is slowly t- turning to silver. Um, so... He, I think he liked me, but I think he also used me. He certainly did later on. He wanted to use me as a conduit to the TED task force up here. Because he didn't want to talk to them directly, but he wanted to send messages. Holy shit. Yeah. So, like, he basically had this thing of him, the way that I'm perceiving it, if I'm perceiving it correctly. Mm-hmm. Bundy wanted to be as detached as possible. From the women that he would kill. So, like, the minute that he struck up any amount of conversation or got any kind of inkling to the humanity of the person he was targeting, he wouldn't go for it. Right. Like she said, they were no good after 20 minutes. Wow. Holy shit. That's, That's definitely chilling. That's definitely scary. Another tip came from Liz. Oh, yeah. You did say in part one that she slowly started to, like, become wary of him. So mm-hmm. that that's interesting. So there were too many coincidences for her. His name matching the suspect's name, the description of him, the description of his car, and events like what happened with him being late to the baptism, staying up all night, being secretive about where he was going, and she found some weird shit in her house. I'm sure porn was in there somewhere. It's always the porn. But even his behavior, like just the way he was acting, he was only interested in sex if he could tie her up, and she was not into that at all. 
And any time that she would speak up for herself and be like, you know, hey, um, I'm not really fucking into this. <laughs> he would get angry. What the fuck? Not cool, Ted. So she's seeing through Ted's act and trusting her gut. And that is terrifying. I literally couldn't imagine. I truly couldn't. I don't know. To me, to be in love with someone who is doing some super foul shit behind your back. I mean, it's not exactly a fun experience to realize the truth of things, especially not in this situation. Yeah, I I couldn't even couldn't even imagine. Like Liz was madly in love with Ted, but as time passed, she just started noticing more and more that he's not at all who he portrayed himself to be. Wow. So as the manhunt for the abductor continued, more witnesses produced descriptions that matched Ted Bundy and his car. Just as some of his victims' bodies were being discovered in the woods, Bundy was accepted to law school in Utah and moved to Salt Lake City on September 2nd. So while his victims are being discovered, he done went to Salt Lake City and went into law school there. Holy shit. He said, all right, I'm going to head out and just dipped. But the police were inundated with tips and they dismissed Ted Bundy as a suspect, thinking it extremely unlikely that a clean-cut law student with no adult criminal record could be the perpetrator. Because like I said, he did get arrested twice as a juvenile, but those were later expunged off his record. Right, right. So he had no record. Gotcha, gotcha. He just didn't fit the profile for them. Wow, scary shit. There were judgments like that that benefited him in some instances, like like how Dahmer, he got away with things because the cops didn't want to get involved in gay stuff. Right. It's kind of the same here, but Ted is more like a an evolving chameleon is what he's like. Holy fucking shit. Now, at the time, both the police and the media believed that the killer was only targeting college girls in the Seattle area. In fact, detectives were so sure that this Ted person was focusing particularly on Seattle that they were hesitant to link him to the disappearance of Roberta Kathleen Parks in Oregon. Wow. And because of this misconception, the citizens of Utah were, like, unbothered. In their minds, this was a Washington problem. Seattle was more than 800 miles away. Little did they know. Little did they know. So on October 2nd, 1974, Ted abducted 16-year-old Nancy Wilcox from Holiday in Utah. Nancy was a popular teenage girl who attended Olympus High School. And according to her friends and family, she was bubbly, funny, and mature for her age. When Nancy went missing, both her parents and the police initially presumed that she had run away. And at the time, nobody in Utah imagined that a roaming free serial killer might cross state lines into their state. Like, no one thought that. Because of this, the Sheriff's Juvenile Division didn't release a public appeal for information until December of 1974, which was three months after she went missing. That is enraging that it took that long. Three months. Yeah. My God. But even then, though, they continued to make the point that Nancy might still be a runaway. I don't understand that at all, but that's a that's another tangent for another time. Yeah, I mean, they they just thought she was a runaway. They weren't finding any clues. They well, had contacted 
45 of her friends and acquaintances, and none of them knew where she was. Several of her friends also passed lie detector tests. None of them knew where she was. See, that's what I don't understand. I'm not going to elaborate on it too much, but it's like you were saying that police should not have a preconceived notion going into something like this. And with what you just said, that's exactly what happened from the minute they heard about her disappearance. They immediately assumed she was a runaway. Thus, that reflected in their work. Why would they take it seriously if they just thought, oh, well, she just run away. No need for us to do any heavy duty investigating like that just completely fucked the entire thing. Right. That is so enraging. And and you see that so much. And yet her family is sitting there with no answers, you know, emotions and feelings and and just just a lack of information of what the fuck happened to their daughter. Well, and they also know their daughter more than anybody else does. Like, good God, if you have this child's parents pleading with you saying, hey, this is not normal. I kind of know my fucking kid. Why would that not be taken immediately fucking seriously? I don't. It's just enraging. You see police failure a little too fucking much. And that's all I'm going to say on that. You guys can use your imagination for the rest of my tangent, but you just see that too often and it's fucking disgusting. I mean, that's that's a whole different discussion for a whole different platform at that point. Right, exactly. But although Bundy admitted to murdering and burying Nancy, her body was never recovered. And to this day, her case remains open. That is, oh my God. So there was a waitress that claimed she saw Nancy... The next day after her case was first publicized, a waitress from Lake Point called the sheriff's office and reported that she had seen a girl matching Nancy's description at her restaurant. She said Nancy was with a tall young man who had a mustache. And after their meal, they left and drove away in a light-colored Volkswagen. Oh my god. God. Now, Bundy may have been stalking and grooming Nancy because her family members mentioned an older guy who would come into her workplace and flirt with her. And at the time, Nancy was working at an Arctic Circle drive-in restaurant. Before Nancy went missing, she told her cousin Jamie Hayden that she had met an older guy who was in law school. However, she didn't say anything else about it. Nancy's sister Susie Nelson recalled a similar conversation, and according to Susie, Nancy became noticeably excited when she spotted this older guy driving past their house, identifying that it was the guy she'd been seeing at her job. Oh, my God. Susie also recalls that on the day she went missing, Nancy left the house after having an argument with her dad. If that's the case, it could explain why the police wouldn't let the runaway thing go. Shortly before his execution in 1989, Ted confessed to the murder of Nancy Wilcox. And during his interview with Salt Lake detective Dennis Couch, he stated that he was on a main roadway That was south of the University of Utah School of Law. He said it was dark at the time and the lighting in the area was poor. He spotted Nancy walking along the side of the road. He then, reports say, forcibly ushered her into the orchard where he then tied her up and took her back to his apartment. Like there was an orchard that he had chased her into. Oh my fucking God. But he had tied her up and took her back to his apartment. Now, he claimed that he kept her in his apartment for a day before he finally murdered her. And he didn't say anything about knowing her beforehand, nor did he go into any detail about the murder. Oh, my God. 
This is so bad. Yeah. Oh my god. I'm I feel like that all I've said this whole episode is oh my god, but I really don't know what else to say. Like truly <laughs> I don't. This is one of the times to where I just really don't have feedback. I'm just shocked. During one of Bundy's third person pseudo confessions with author Stephen Mashad, we'll cover that more in depth in part three. But Bundy would finally open up about his crimes in the third person and in hypothetical scenarios as to not incriminate himself. Which isn't that in itself kind of incriminating? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I guess so. But he took it as, you know, they have this killer and they're asking for his law school opinion or whatever. I, I don't really oh, know. Oh, I see. I kind of see. So he's giving the dynamic of answering questions about this purse, this killer, but he's basically... Right. He's basically spilling. Right. That's what you meant. Okay, but, okay. I mean, okay, so some people say that he would, during his interrogation or interview, I would say, that at certain points... When he was saying certain things, he would, like, lower his voice and talk lower when it came to certain things, right? Wow. And this kind of shows that certain things that he did, he felt some sort of shame. Right, right, you know? but right. he wasn't, like, shameful in the point of, like, oh, I must atone, but, you know. He wasn't remorseful, but shameful. Right. Gotcha. So he claimed that the killer parked his car further down the road. He then ran up behind Nancy Wilcox and forced her into the orchard. He planned on raping her. He did not intend on murdering her. And in the killer's mind, avoiding the act of murder might draw less attention to the crime. However, this plan didn't work. Nancy started to struggle with him, and at that stage he began to worry that someone in one of the nearby houses might hear the commotion and investigate. In a fit of panic... He strangled the girl until she passed out, and once she was unconscious, he removed her clothes and raped her. He started to realize that she had stopped moving, and this panicked him so much that he dragged her body into a corner and then left. What However, in the fuck. Now, mind you, this is all in third person. Yeah, okay? I'm gathering. However, once this killer had returned to his apartment, he immediately began to worry that he had left behind physical evidence. As a result, he decided to travel back to the orchard to see if the body was still there. And according to Bundy, this killer was so intoxicated during the crime that it took him a while to find the exact area again. Like, he couldn't even remember where he attacked her at. What in the fuck? So once he found the orchard, he saw that there was nobody around and that Nancy's body was still undisturbed. Subsequently, he loaded her body and clothes into his car and drove back to his apartment. He then waited a day or two before finally disposing of her remains. Again, her body was never recovered. Oh my god. On October 18th, 1974, Bundy abducted, raped, sodomized, and strangled 17-year-old Melissa Smith from Midvale, Utah. She was the daughter of police chief Lewis Smith. Oh my god. Her body was discovered just nine days later. That's all the information that I have on her. Oh my god. This is fucking... All of this is just... Uh, on yeah. Halloween... 1974, 
Bundy kidnapped, raped, and murdered 17-year-old Laura Ann Aim from Leahy, Utah. Her parents described her as a gentle, free spirit. Her remains were found Thanksgiving Day on 1974 in a mountainous area. She was a baby. She was a baby, and that's sad. On November 8th, 1974, Bundy attempted to abduct 18-year-old Carol Durant at the Fashion Place Mall in Murray, Utah. Now, this is where Bundy slipped up. Oh, gotcha. Because because of this attack on Carol is how he started to slip up. Carol was looking in a bookstore window when a man claimed to be a police officer approached her. He identified himself as Officer Roseland. But as you've probably guessed, yes, this was Bundy. Ted told Carol that police had caught someone trying to break into her car. He was polite, and she trusted him enough to go back to her car with him to assess any damage and to see if anything was missing. Carol said, quote, He kept leaning forward like he wanted me to look further in the car, but I wouldn't. I just said, nothing's missing, end quote. Straight fucking chills. Bundy then told her that police were holding the suspect and asked her if she'd be willing to accompany him back to the police station, where she could file a complaint, but her instincts kicked in. Good girl. Good girl. Thank God. She's Fuck. beginning to feel uneasy, so she asked for his identification, and he actually whipped out a police badge from his wallet. What? Yeah. I have no idea where he got this badge from, but she only agreed to ride with him because the badge made her feel a little bit better. She still didn't trust him, but she was like, all right, I'll go. Oh, my God. Once they were in the car, she starts getting that feeling that something's not right. There was an immediate vibe change. Instead of taking her to the police station, he drove down a side street and pulled over by an elementary school. Now... It was portrayed in the movie American Boogeyman, Ted Bundy, that during this car ride, she was trying to talk to him and ask him questions, Mm -hmm. and he would just, like, stop talking to her. Like, he would just, at that point, once he got her in the car and he started driving, silence. Oh, my God. So, I don't know how true that is, but watching that, movie like gave me the fucking chills during that (laughs) i bet i fucking bet now he then attacked her and tried to handcuff her she fought back so he was only able to get the cuff on one wrist carol was quoted saying i had never been so frightened in my entire life and i know this is cliche but my whole life went before my eyes i thought my god my parents are never gonna know what happened to me i just fought with all my might Thrashing with him and fighting. My fingernails were all broken. I remember his beady, blank, lifeless eyes. Oh, asshole has left the chat. (laughs) Hell no, ma'am. I think we need to take out an insurance policy on your asshole. That's what I'm thinking. At the beginning of this, I was a lot more confident that I wouldn't need something like that. But I don't know, bitch. You kind of (laughs) broke me down. So she's fighting him. She's fighting him and she's trying to, you know, protect herself. He quickly pulled out a gun and threatened to blow her head off. But this badass 
She jumped out of the car. I don't know if the car was moving. I don't know if the car was stopped. But she said, all right, I'm going to head out and jumped out. Oh, my goodness. So he chased after her with a crowbar. And there was another brief struggle before Carol broke free from his grasp to run to, like, an oncoming car for help. Carol had escaped certain death. She was quoted again saying, I was very lucky and it was really shocking to find out later that he was so angry that I had gotten away. He just drove somewhere else and killed someone else. End quote. Oh my fuck. Now that someone else would end up being 17-year-old Deborah Jean Kent. Hours after his encounter with Carol, Deborah would vanish without a trace. Now there are varying stories regarding her disappearance. One source says she was supposed to take her parents' car to pick up her brothers from like a skating rink and she was abducted somewhere between the door to her home and her car. What the hell? Like they're saying that she never even made it to her parents' car, which is fucking terrifying. The other source claims, and this one I tend to believe, that she was attending a theater production at a local high school that night. She left the play early to pick up her brother, but investigators believe Bundy kidnapped her in the parking lot before she even made it to her car. Now, that seems a little more plausible. I mean, either Either way, though. Either way. To just not even, just to step out somewhere outside and not even make it to your car just in the, just gone? Yeah. My God. Bundy claimed in an interview with Salt Lake County Sheriff's Detective Dennis Couch that he left her body in a grave, but her body has never been found. My fucking God. At the scene of Kent's abduction, police found a handcuff key that fit the cuffs Carol's assailant had tried to restrain her with. Like they found a handcuff key. Oh my God. On November 30th, 1974, Authorities began a two-day search of the canyons around Salt Lake City in search of Nancy Wilcox and Deborah Kent. Unfortunately, nothing was found. On January 12, 1975, Bundy abducted 23-year-old Karen Eileen Campbell from the Wildwood Inn in Snowmass, Colorado. She was a registered nurse from Dearborn, Michigan, and at the time of her murder, Karen and her fiancé, Dr. Raymond Godowski, was on a vacation trip to Colorado with his son and daughter. Now, this vacation was a mixture of business and pleasure because during the trip, Raymond was planning on attending a cardiology conference in Aspen. While he was attending seminars, Karen took the kids sightseeing. Right. So that evening, they were relaxing in the lounge of the Wildwood Inn when she decided to go up to their room to get a magazine. And when Karen exited the elevator on the second floor, she saw a group of doctors who she recognized from the cardiology seminar. She said hello and made polite conversation with them. She then continued to walk down the hallway toward her room. This was the last time anyone saw Karen Campbell. And that is just, it's sad. Like you leave home for rest, relaxation, and a good time and end up murdered and missing. What the fuck? It is extremely heavy. Like, my God. So despite a widespread search of the inn and the surrounding areas, the police were unable to find any trace of Karen whatsoever. Five weeks later, her body was discovered less than three miles from the inn. My God. At around 9 a.m. on February 17th, Louise Oliver was driving along Owl Creek Road when she noticed that a number of birds were hovering around an area on a nearby snowbank. 
she decided to investigate what had gotten the bird's attention. So she trudged roughly eight yards through the snow and was horrified to find the naked body of Karen Campbell. Her frozen remains had been lying there for nearly 40 days. 40 days? One of my sources say 36 days. Oh my God. It took medical examiners more than 24 hours for her body to thaw out before they could examine her. In the meantime, the pathologist had to use dental records to positively identify her. According to the coroner's report, her skull sustained multiple heavy fractures. Karen's assailant had also slit her left earlobe with a sharp instrument. After examining the contents of her stomach, authorities were able to determine that her murder took place shortly after she was missing. It was physically impossible to determine whether or not her attacker had raped her because of decomposition and animal destruction. Because her clothes were missing, the detectives were pretty confident that they were dealing with a sex crime. They were also mindful of the fact that women had been disappearing in the nearby states of Utah and Washington. According to the coroner's report, her tongue, larynx, and hyoid bone were actually missing due to animal destruction. If the hyoid bone was broken, that would mean clear signs of strangulation. Like, that's one of the things that they look for in strangulation. Unfortunately, it wasn't there. But her head trauma was a big factor here, and the MO was fitting to Ted's MO. Before his execution in 1989, Ted Bundy confessed to the murder of Karen Campbell. This makes me sick, but he admitted to doing his thing that night. The evidence also backed up his admission. On the day that Karen went missing, credit card receipts show that Bundy purchased gas in a nearby town of Glenwood Springs, which was just 40 miles away from Aspen. When the FBI analyzed his Volkswagen Beetle, they also discovered hairs that were microscopically similar to Karen's hair. Oh my goodness. I actually have a very small snippet from the autopsy report for you. Under general examination, it reads... The eyebrows and the eyes absent, the orbital cavities essentially empty, the soft tissue about and within the mouth is absent, and there is no tongue, hyoid bone, larynx, or thyroid. The trachea is present only within the chest. Oh my god. So, animals, you know, a decomposing body, wild animals, they had a field day. That is... And unfortunately... <sighs> Them having a field day just means less information on what actually happened. Exactly. You know, so there's that. But on Sunday, March 2nd, 1975, while Bundy was in Salt Lake City, Utah, two forestry students stumbled across a human skull at Taylor Mountain, as I was telling you earlier. When Detective Kempel arrived at the scene... He soon realized that the silver fillings on the upper teeth matched the dental records of Brenda Ball. During the second day of the investigation, Keppel was examining the wooded area when he tripped over a branch and stumbled across a second skull belonging to Susan Elaine Rancourt. Following this discovery, it immediately became clear to detectives that they were dealing with another one of Ted's dump sites. Six months previously was when the dumping site at Issaquah was found. So, six months. Issaquah was found, six months, and then Taylor Mountain was found. Oh my god, damn. These two burial sites were only 12 miles away from each other. What the fuck? 
At that point, a large-scale operation was put together and a team of search volunteers were called in to search for evidence. And during this operation, ESAR volunteers discovered another skull and mandible. These remains proved to be a match against the dental records of Roberta Kathleen Parks and Linda Ann Healy. Now, this find was so significant that it forced Keppel and the other detectives to reevaluate everything they thought they knew about Ted Bundy. Or this Ted character. Gotcha. Up until that point, they believed that he was solely focusing on university campuses in and around the Seattle area. But Brenda Ball's murder showed them that the killer was willing to change his M.O. He had also strayed far outside of his comfort zone by kidnapping Roberta Kathleen Parks from Corvallis, a town which was more than 250 miles away. So the authorities were now starting to realize that the man they were looking for was prepared to branch out and vary in his crimes. Like, how do you catch a killer that is an evolving chameleon? Right. That is, it's fucking scary. Like, my God, this is some scary shit. So on March 15, 1975, Bundy abducted, raped, and killed 26-year-old ski instructor Julie Cunningham from Vail, Colorado. Ted used his usual tactics to lure Julie in. When she agreed to help, they walked nearly half a mile to go back to his VW bug, like they were walking for a while. And once there, he then manipulated her into helping him put his ski boots into his vehicle. Then he would grab the crowbar hidden under his wheel well and knock her unconscious. An hour into the drive, Julia regained consciousness and started asking him questions about who he was, why he was doing this, and if he could please loosen the handcuffs. Once he found a secluded spot, he got out of the car to scope out the area and then noticed that she had gotten out and tried to escape. Another struggle ensued and he hit her over the head with the crowbar and knocked her out again. He then got some cord out of his car and strangled her to death. Roughly six weeks later, he reportedly returned to the crime scene to bury her body and make sure that he hadn't left any evidence behind. In January of 1989, Ted Bundy finally confessed to her murder. Although he described the area where he buried her body, she was never found. My God. April 6, 1975, Bundy killed 24-year-old Denise Lynn Oliverson from Grand Junction, Colorado. She was last seen biking away from the Grand Junction home she shared with her boyfriend slash fiancé. They allegedly got into some sort of argument and she was going to bike over the over the Colorado River to her parents' house, but she vanished. The next day on April 7th, a railroad employee spotted her sandals in a yellow 10-speed bicycle under a viaduct just a block from her home. Oh my god. He said he left her body in the Colorado River and it has never been recovered. Side note. The Grand Junction Police Department decided to revisit the case after renewed public interest in Bundy back in 2019. And after reviewing the confession tapes and talking to investigators who interviewed Bundy on death row, the Grand Junction Police Department reclassified Oliverson's disappearance from a missing persons case to a homicide case in May of 2019. So that was recent. They also closed the case because Bundy... Their lead suspect has been dead for over 30 years, so. Wow. But they, they did end up recently closing her case. 
April 15, 1975, 18-year-old Melanie Cooley was abducted from her school in Nederland, Colorado. Her body was found 20 miles away on May 2nd. The following Thursday, a man found Melanie's wallet near his property and brought it into the school. A few days later, her parents and four deputies searched the area where the wallet was found, which had formerly been the site of a hippie commune and had sheds and outbuildings, piles of old lumber, barrels of trash, and rusted auto bodies strewn about. Melanie's mom found her daughter's birth control pills in a personalized container bearing the name Susie, lying in the dirt a few feet from the side of the road. Melanie's body was later found frozen and fully clothed on Twin Spruce Road near Coal Creek Canyon, according to Sheriff Brad Lee. Quote, she had been bludgeoned, perhaps with a stone. Her hands were tied in front with a yellow nylon cord, many, many feet of it, wrapped around and around. She died from a blow to the head and strangulation. Her face had been beaten repeatedly with a rock. One contact lens was missing. The body was in pretty bad shape, what with freezing and thawing and the wild things, two weeks lying there, end quote. There was also reportedly a, quote, filthy pillowcase twisted around her neck, end quote, according to author Ann Rule. Melanie was identified by way of a report card found in her pocket, dental records, and a birthmark on her thigh. Her parents were also later asked to identify her clothing. She is believed to have been dead for 10 days to two weeks before she was found. That is so fucking sad. On May 5th, 1975, Bundy traveled to Pocatello, Idaho, where he kidnapped and drowned 12-year-old Lynette Don Culver in a bathtub. 12 years old? Yes. Oh my God! She's a baby! Yes. What the fuck? Like I said like a hundred times, I'm so over this. I fucking hate Ted Bundy. Like, I'm so done. Right? D-O-N-E, done. <laughs> on that day, Bundy checked into the Holiday Inn on Creek Road and was given a room at the back of the hotel. With unfavorable weather conditions combined with his lack of knowledge of the area, it made it extremely difficult for him to troll around for a victim. And although he did approach a number of women, these abduction attempts did not progress far enough to raise any kind of suspicion. Instead, it seemed as though he was quickly turned down. His first day ended in failure, and he eventually decided to return to the Holiday Inn empty-handed. The next day, on May 6, 1975, Bundy parked his Volkswagen Bug outside of the Alameda Junior High School on McKinley Avenue. After seeing Lynette Culver walking along by herself, he decided to approach her and strike up a conversation. He somehow managed to lure her back to his car. Judging by his other crimes, it's likely that Bundy convinced Culver to accompany him by using one of his various ruses. For example, he may have pretended to be a police officer or a family member who had been sent there to pick her up. When Lynette jumped into the bug, the pair made small talk as Bundy drove back towards the Holiday Inn. Little is known about what happened afterwards. Shortly before his execution in 1989, he confessed to murdering Lynette. Although he did not provide many details, he did state that he drowned her in the bathtub in his hotel room. Oh my fucking God. Afterwards, he placed her remains in the trunk of his car and drove north 
where he eventually stopped to dump her body in the Snake River. Sadly, Lynette Culver's body has never been found, and to this day, she remains listed as a missing person. That is so sad. Oh my God, it's sad. It's pretty bad. On June 27, 1975, Bundy kidnapped and killed 15-year-old Susan Curtis when she was attending the Bountiful Orchard Youth Conference at Brigham Young University. Susan was a student at Woods Cross High School at the time of her disappearance. She was on the track team and the girls' baseball team during her freshman year. She had a history of running away from home for days at a time, but she was never missing for very long. He stated he buried her body along a highway near Price, Utah, but a search of the site turned up no evidence. On June 29, 1975, Bundy allegedly abducts 23-year-old Shelley Robertson from Golden, Colorado. No further information for this one. On July 4, 1975, Bundy abducts 23-year-old Nancy Baird from Layton, Utah. Nancy and her child were living with relatives while her ex-husband resided in Wyoming. Nancy was working at the FINA gas station at the 200 block of South Highway 89 in East Layton, Utah. A patrol officer saw her at 5.15 p.m., but when her manager arrived to take over the next shift, Nancy was gone. Her car was undisturbed in the parking lot and her personal belongings were in the gas station where she had left them. Her son was only four years old at the time of her disappearance. Oh my God. August 16, 1975 at 2.30 a.m., Ted Bundy was arrested for the first time in Granger, Utah. A local highway patrol officer, Bob Howard, spotted Bundy parked in front of a home where the officer knew the parents and knew they were out of town while their daughters were staying home alone. Oh, fuck. It was a routine traffic stop, and as the officer attempted to approach the car, Bundy drove off. After the officer caught up with him, he was arrested for attempting to evade an officer, and um, I believe they also added on his report uh, attempted burglary because of the items they found in his car. Uh, they found a ski mask, a rope, an ice pick, handcuffs, and a crowbar. Jesus fucking Christ. Bundy was out on bail the very next day. What? Yep. What the fuck? Why? Uh, I wasn't able to find any further information for that, but he was out on bail the next day. Fucking fuck, man. Even more striking to the police, he matched the description of Carol Durant's would-be kidnapper. Police called her down to the station to pick Bundy out from a lineup. And the telling thing here is he drastically changed his physical appearance beforehand. Like, he parted his hair differently. He wore his clothes differently. He was literally out here trying to chameleon his fucking way out of being caught. Scary shit. But she recognized him immediately. Wow, well, I bet. She was straight-faced and was like, this is the psycho that tried to kidnap me. Oh, my God, the chills. In 1976, Ted Bundy was charged with aggravated kidnapping and was found to be guilty. Ted waived a jury trial, and the judge sentenced him to 1 to 15 years in the Utah State Prison. He was then extradited to Colorado to be tried for murder. As we wrap up today's episode, let me tell you what you can expect in part three. Bundy's first conviction set off a series of events, including prison escapes and even more assaults and murders that would ultimately link Bundy to disappearances and murders in multiple states, seven different states. 
all of this, all of this that will come from now to what's left in part three, all of this results in Ted Bundy being charged and found guilty and sentenced to death. And that concludes part two of Ted Bundy for today, guys. Yeah, thanks. I fucking hate it. <laughs> I know I've said this a time or two in some of your cases, but this one on the realest shit that could be real. I'm so happy that we're at the end of this. My God, or at least I'm happy we're at the end of this part. I'm trying not to think about the fact that there's one more part. <laughs> yeah, there's one more part and there's definitely more murders to cover. <laughs> He just, he was not done. And it just seemed like the first time that he got caught, not for the murders, but like the first time that he got caught and arrested, it was almost like he started to realize that things were going to catch up with him. So he was like, oh, well, you know, let me get my daily quota in. You know, it's just, it's fucking terrible. It's fucking terrible. Jesus, Jesus. So... You guys definitely have a part three, which will be the conclusion of this case. Thank fuck. Uh, (laughs) Next week. So, uh, yeah. To kind of close everything out today, because I am oh so ready to get off of here. My (laughs) goodness. We hope you enjoyed Ted Bundy part two. If you would like to follow me and Ray and all of our weird, well, we have some pretty great news for you. You can do that. You can find us on Facebook at Go Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. And Gore Report Podcast. And Twitter. And Gore Report. And don't forget our email, guys. GoreReportPod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Absolutely. So, yeah, you guys, this is going to be kind of anticlimactic because I really don't have a whole lot to say at the end of this. I'm still very disappointed in myself about the premature fluffing. And honestly, I fucking hate Ted Bundy. Like, literally, I can't even explain to you how much I hate him. I just wish I could t- take his his stupid little sling that he had his stupid little fake broken arm and I just stupid little strangle him. <laughs> I am so happy we're at the end of this. My God. Well, you don't have to worry about strangling him because, you know, he is dead. Hey, true. Good point. <laughs> well, that makes me happy. On that note, that's all for today, you guys. Bye. Bye.